Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a speech given by W. Cleon Skousen titled, Jonah and the Whale, recorded in 1982 while he was in the Holy Land. I hope this delightful speech helps you personally in your study of Jonah, the Old Testament, and your personal quest to know the Savior. This speech can be found in the larger volume of talks called Favorite Speeches of W. Cleon Skousen. You may also enjoy Dr. Skousen's popular books on the Old Testament. There are three volumes, the first 2,000 years, the third thousand years, and the fourth thousand years. All three of these volumes can be found online or at audible.com if you prefer to listen. Now sit back and learn with the audience in the Holy Land as we listen to W. Cleon Skousen teach Jonah and the Whale. Enjoy! This is one of those times in the Bible when the faith of the reader is really shaken. There are two things in the Bible that are most difficult for people to believe rationally. One is the great flood and the other is the experience of Jonah. Now Jonah actually was a young popular prophet that came um, right after Elisha. And he received a revelation that said that now Israel was going to start to expand and become as big as it was back in the days of King Solomon. Well, gee, everybody wanted to hear that prophecy. He probably was asked to speak at all the fireside chats and everything. And he was doing very well. He lived up just south of, of uh, the Sea of Galilee. That was his home. And then one day the Lord came to Jonah and said, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them that if they don't repent in 40 days, <clears throat> they'll get the Sodom and Gomorrah treatment. They will be destroyed. Well, you know, that's a mission. Shouldn't be any problem. You just go over there and tell them. And you're doing them a favor. What panicked Jonah? He went into an emotional spasm. You have to know what Nineveh did to people who came with bad news. Nineveh is famous in history for having used the most, uh, the greatest atrocities against people who either resisted them, would not pay their tribute and taxes, or rose up against them in war. A favorite tactic was to flay the person. That means to skin them, literally skin them alive. Uh, it begins here in the thoracic cavity, splitting of the skin, and the, whole, the body can actually stand the torture of being skinned until it's almost completed before the person dies of shock. And they often did that. Or burn them alive, or put them in cages and tortured them with torches until they died, or cut off the nose and the ears and other parts of the body, or another favorite tactic was to put a person to the living death. They cut off the knuckles and let them heal, cut off the next knuckle, let them heal, and just keep cutting them off, cut it off at the wrist, then cut off at the elbow, cut off at the shoulder, then start on the next arm. And they just take all the limbs off until the person finally dies. It's called a living death. That's what Nineveh was famous for. I've got some, some writings of some of their kings where they reveled in the fact that there were dead bodies and blood up to the bellies of their horses. 
Now all you had to say to Jonah was to go to Nineveh and give them the message that they would be destroyed in 40 days if they didn't repent, and Jonah knows exactly what's going to happen to him. I mean, it just terrified him. So Nineveh was that way, and he went that way and came down as rapidly as he could to the first major port, the closest port, which wasn't Haifa in those days. It was Joppa. And he came down here and took the biggest boat that was going the furthest distance. It was a Tarshish boat, and that means a Phoenician boat headed for Spain. Those boats used to load up with bronze and similar materials here, they'd load them to the gunnels. And then they would trade off that material till they, all the way along the Egyptian coast and around the African coast till they got over to Spain and it would be empty. They'd load it with tin and bring it back to mix with the copper here in Israel to make bronze, right? Bronze is tin and copper. The copper was here. They needed the tin. So that boat was all loaded ready to go, and Jonah came, breathless, got his ticket, and rushed down into the, one of the lower decks or holes of the ship to go to Spain. Now that ship got out here in the Mediterranean, and I've only seen one of these kind of storms, a real Jonah storm, a couple of times. But I want to tell you, I was up in Beirut one time when a Mediterranean Jonah storm hit, I thought it was going to blow in the glass windows of the Phoenician Hotel. The, the, the way the, the wind and the rain and hail and everything beat against those windows. And they didn't cave in, but I thought they were going to. It was a terrible storm. They call them Jonah storms on the Mediterranean. Well, that ship got out here just far enough, not too far from shore, but far enough out from shore so the captain could see he was losing his ship. And so he ordered his men to completely unload the load. They couldn't get back to shore, he didn't think, with it. So he just dump it. And so they dumped the whole load into the Mediterranean. And wherever Jonah was, they didn't find him. They dumped the whole load. Then the captain said, because the storm did not stop, and they were not going to save the ship, he said to his men, I think one of you, has offended his God while you were on shore leave. And sailors always offend their gods and everything else when they take shore leave, so <clears throat> there was no doubt some problem there. And so he said, all of you on your knees, ask your God to forgive you and see if the storm won't stop. Well, it didn't. And he said, I think somebody's lying. And he said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to draw lots and see who's guilty. Now, the way they did lots was to take a rock. One man took, each took a rock, put in for himself. The captain would then mark one of the rocks X. They would stir them up, and then each man would take one out again. And the gods were supposed to guide the guilty hand to the X rock. While they were preparing the, the lots, the captain happened to go downstairs. And I don't know how he happened to find Jonah, but he did. And he said, up, up, sleeper. Maybe you're the guilty one. You get up there and put your rock in or your lot in. Now Jonah is cold sober. 
in his anxiety and his frightenedness, he had, he had run away from an assignment given to him by God. We've tried to understand Jonah's perspective, and the more we're learning about the historical situation, the more sympathetic we are to his state of mind. But now he feels terrible, and he goes up on the deck, adds his rock, they stir it up, each man takes his rock, and guess who gets the X? Jonah got it. And the captain said, what did you do? Well, he said, I was commanded by God to take a message to Nineveh, and I was afraid to take it. And I have to tell you that unless you throw me overboard, you'll all be drowned. Well, the captain said, we don't want to do that. Come on, men, get to the oars, and we'll try and, and get this ship to shore. And so everybody got to their oars, and they did what they could. It didn't do a bit of good, and it said the boat just stayed out. It wasn't too far from shore. You can see that. They were trying to get it in, and the tide kept pushing it back. Finally, the captain, in effect, looked up at the heavens and said, Well, if you insist, here goes. And so they grabbed Jonah and threw him overboard. The big question was now, what would happen? The wind died down. The waves ceased. And all was calm on the Mediterranean. The captain said, now there's a God. When he's angry and mad, I tell you, he is angry. But when you do what he wants you to do, we got, you see, we got results. Men, let's all make a special oblation to the Lord God Jehovah of Jonah and Israel. And they did. They made a little sacrifice right there on the ship, it says. Meanwhile, Jonah's back there in the water. And he says that when he hit that cold water, he just sank down and down and down till he got to the what he calls the bottom of the mountains of the Mediterranean, which meant pretty deep. What was more difficult was that he went right into a whole bed of seaweed. And he said it got all around his head. And I've been deep sea swimming before. I, it's hard to, to, to forget that there's three miles of water straight down there, just dark black water. And then to, to run into seaweed, ooh, it's just like Jaws. You can just feel Jaws picking you up as you run into seaweed if you're out deep in deep sea, seawater. Well, he says, I sank down and he was uh, fearful that he was not going to be able to make it. He said, I prayed to God that he'd forgive me and give me a chance that I could get back to the surface and save my life, and then it happened. Now, the Old Testament says that he was swallowed by a fish, but Jesus says it was a whale. And it makes a whale of a difference whether it was a fish or a whale because a fish has no air in its stomach, and a whale does. And it's now assumed that it was a sperm whale, it's the only whale that's big enough to swallow a man without chewing him up in pieces. And Jonah was not chewed up in pieces. He was swallowed whole. Now what happened to Jonah is not described in the Bible, but it is described by a man in our own day who was swallowed by a sperm whale and lived to tell about it, was in the stomach of the whale, not quite as long as Jonah, but long enough to go through the whole trauma of what it was like. James Barclay was in a whaling vessel off the coast of South America near the Falkland Islands, which was the main sperm whaling uh, um, area of that day. 
He was in a boat with two other men with a harpoon as they came up close to a huge sperm whale. And uh, they, they cast the harpoon into the whale and usually they will just run. And what they do is to just keep chasing them till they exhaust themselves and then they shoot them and kill them. That's not what this whale did. It turned on the boat and it smashed right in the center of that small boat from which the harpoon had been cast, immediately killed one man, uh, another one was recovered uh, uh, from the water, and James Bartley completely disappeared. So they assumed he was dead too. However, they re-harpooned the whale, they let it race itself into exhaustion, they finally were able to get close enough to kill it, and then they pulled it up alongside of the fishing vessel. Today they pull them up on the vessel, they're bigger ships. But in those days, they just brought them up alongside, and the men went overboard and started the flensing process of cutting the blubber out in huge chunks, putting it up on deck, boiling the oil out of it, and throwing the pulp away. And that's the process of doing it. It took them uh, about 48 hours to get down into the stomach area, and um, as they got down into the stomach area, they noticed there was something moving inside the stomach. It was collapsed and there was something moving in there. Now these, these whales, when they're hurt and are racing through the water, uh, if they get a, a shark or something in front of them in their pain, they'll swallow it whole. Their teeth are very tiny. They're designed to emulsify meat. And uh, if they're in pain, they won't chew. They just swallow in a gulp. And so the sailors used to become accustomed to opening up the stomachs to see what they would find. And sometimes there'd be rather large fish that they had swallowed in while they were racing away and because of the pain and everything, they would just go through this gulping process. When they split open the stomach, they saw to their amazement, it's James Bartley. He is unconscious, uh, but still alive. And so they washed him off with seawater and put him in the captain's uh, bedroom uh, and did what they could to nurse him back to health and strength. He did finally come to, but he was totally insane for about two weeks. And then gradually he was able to rationally describe what actually happened. By the time the ship got to France, the Royal Society of France did a a complete interview of the man as to what happened to him. Later it was done by the Royal Society of England. James Bartley said that when he went down, when the fish's t uh, the whale's tail hit the boat and he went down, he went down so hard and the water sucked him down so far that he was fearful he'd never make it back to surface. And he said his lungs were just about to burst when all of a sudden something grabbed him, he said, I felt like I was in a straitjacket. Well, the sperm whale swallow is about eight feet long, and it squeezes him right down, and the next thing you know, he's plopped somewhere, and he can't help but gasp for breath, but he can breathe. He didn't, he didn't suck in water. And uh, he said he had several immediate sensations. One was that it was very hot. The whale's stomach is about 104 degrees. The sensation of a fishy atmosphere was also present. Not very pleasant air, but it is air. And a whale comes to the surface, you know, every so often and blows and breathes. His next sensation, he says he had, is that it was absolutely silent. He could hear his own heartbeat. 
There was just absolutely no sound wherever he was, and of course, it almost immediately occurred to him he had been swallowed by the whale. Now, the thing that bothered him the most was uh, he, he didn't have to worry about air. He, he could survive. He worried about starving to death. And he, he went into total shock and um, fainted before it, before it occurred to him that every so often there was some acid that poured into that stomach specifically designed to digest meat. <laughs> that apparently didn't occur to him. He, what he was worried about was having something to eat or uh, he would starve to death in this whale's stomach. Th those were the thoughts he said that went through his mind and then he said he didn't know what happened to him. He just blacked out. And so he was still alive when they got him out. And he'd been in there not quite as long as Jonah, but he'd been in there a long time. His hands were all just like um, uh, parchment. So was his face. Where his clothes were, the acid had not been running long enough to have hurt him. How the Lord protected Jonah, we're not told, but um, in any event, uh, it didn't destroy the life of James Bartley. So his story was told, and uh, I read it in a newspaper, a summary of it in a newspaper in Ipswich, England in 1930. I thought it was an Ipswich paper. And I clipped it out. And I got to telling somebody about this amazing experience of a human being that went through about the same thing Jonah did, which, is, which everybody has often thought was a pretty tall tale to believe. And I said, maybe there was a, uh, you know if the Lord said it happened, it did happen. But here's a creditable uh, way we can understand how it happened. And somebody said, I got to see that article. I don't believe you. You know how missionary companions will do to you. <laughs> I went back to get the article. I couldn't find it. So I went back and I searched the papers. I searched the London papers. I, the, the Express, the Times. I went through all the Ipswich papers. I couldn't find it. I had to stop telling the story. When I was preparing the 4,000 years, which covers the life of Jonah, I had a missionary son in England in Ipswich. And 30 years after I read the article in the Ipswich paper, the same paper published the article. And my son saw it and sent it to me and said, Dad, is this what you were looking for? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So I put it in the 4,000 years verbatim, exactly as it came out of the paper, so I, I wouldn't lose my copy again. Now, since we know what James Bartley's experience was like, we can apply it somewhat to Jonah. But it was a little different with Jonah uh, because the Lord had a special arrangement there with him. The acid in the whale's stomach didn't destroy him. He was able to breathe, so we, we're quite certain that the word whale used by Jesus is the accurate one and not fish as it appears in the Old Testament. An interesting thing happened to this whale. When a whale cannot digest something in its stomach, it will always head toward shore, which turned out to be convenient for Jonah. They'll go to shore. In fact, I've seen uh, the, when a whale is sick, whatever they uh, exude along the shore is very precious stuff. Guess for what? What do they use it for? When a whale uh, regurgitates and people are able to collect it along the shore. What do they use it for? 
perfume. It'll stay with you for a long time. That's right. I was in San Diego on one occasion. I saw everybody down there with buckets, and I said, what's going on down there? They said, oh, they're scraping up some, some um, whale regurgitation. I said, for what? They said, for perfume. It's very, boy, you get a lot of money for it. So I always look at every bottle of perfume <laughs> with interesting <coughs> contemplation. Anyway, after three days and three nights, which Jesus later said was a sign to the people of that time that the very Messiah himself would be entombed for three days and three nights, this fish decided to get rid of Jonah. So it went up toward the shore, like all sick whales do, and burped him up. And I've often thought that it was more traumatic coming up than it was going down when you stop to think about it. And I've also thought to myself that probably as he came out into the surf of that water and made himself to shore and got there on that sand and looked around him and felt the tierra firma and felt himself being washed and cleansed and looked around and saw those beautiful hills and saw the bushes and the flowers and that marvelous blue sky and then above everything else pure sweet air I don't think there was anybody in the whole universe at that time that was more grateful for the sky and the clouds and the air and the soil of the earth than Jonah but the Lord was there almost immediately the book says and uh, the Lord said, Jonah, Nineveh? <laughs> and Jonah's reaction was, I'm going, I'm going, I'm, uh, I'm on my way. I, uh, and it's interesting that he was totally reconciled to martyrdom. He, he knew what was going to happen to him. So he's going to be skinned, he's going to be dismembered, he's going through the living death, so be it. Anything's better than that. I'm on my way. Now he had several hundred miles to go. He had to cleanse himself. He had to get prepared. There's a lot to that part of the story we don't know anything about. All these other details are in the book, and it's only one and a pa half pages long. Sometimes people will hear our recitation of it and say, how can you get that many details out of it? And, and my answer is, just by reading it carefully. It's all there. Everything I've told you so far is there, except the James Bartley story, and that's in the 4,000 years. In any event, he made his way several hundred miles till he reached this huge city of Nineveh, the most famous city in the world at that time. The record says, the Bible says, it took three days to go from one suburb to the other. It's a big city. The center of the city is walled, with walls a hundred feet high, wide enough for three chariots to ride abreast. And inside of this city, there are rulers that are the most cruel, voluptuous rulers in the world at that time. They terrified the whole world during the time that they were running things. Well, you can imagine what Jonah's feelings were. When do I start my speech? He decided he wouldn't uh, give it to a small audience. Well, we deduct that from the fact that he didn't say a word to anybody till he had gone into the city one full day. Kind of wanted to get in there. He's probably only get it, going to get to say it once. So he better be there where he can say it to a lot of people. And so he got there and he let her go. Thus saith the Lord God Jehovah, the God of Israel, 
Forty days, and if this city has not repented, it shall be totally destroyed. And nothing happened to him. Nobody grabbed him. There was no skinning. Nobody took off his nose or his ears. He didn't go through any living death. So he thought he'd say it again. Forty days. Nothing happened to him. Said it again. In fact, he started striding through the people. He's getting braver by the minute. Forty days. Forty days. And destruction comes upon this city. Finally, he went through the city and came out on the other side. Now, what he didn't know was that the very first people that heard him took off and reported to the king and said there's a prophet of Jehovah, the God of Israel, predicting our total destruction in 40 days. Guess what the king said? We deserve it. We deserve it. Everybody on their knees. Everybody in sackcloth. Put our animals in sackcloth. On your knees to the Lord God, Jehovah of Israel. And ask him to give us another chance. Now Jonah didn't know that. So he was amazed when he made contact with the Lord as he came out the other side when the Lord said, isn't it wonderful, so to speak? Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> sure was. <laughs> Jonah's still intact. Didn't have to be, he hadn't been skinned or anything. And the Lord said, I mean that I don't have to destroy the city. And Jonah's reaction was traumatic. You don't what? He said, I don't have to destroy the city. They are repenting. Jonah said, you know, and you have to get the Septuagint version to get, it's a little better than our King James. He said, you know, when I was home contemplating this assignment, I said to myself, if they just repented the least little bit, I'll bet the Lord will go soft. <laughs> he wanted to see them punished. They deserved to be punished. They were the most cruel people in the world. And it says in our King James Version, as it does in the Septuagint, Jonah was angry with the Lord. He just didn't think it was just. So he went up on some of those high cliffs that overlooked Nineveh, and he built himself a little booth to wait out the 40 days. See if the Lord wouldn't come across with something or other. And while he was waiting for the 40 days to pass, it was terribly hot. I've been in that 120 degree heat, not there, but in Egypt and elsewhere. And you've been down at Masada. We've been in 137, 138 degrees heat down there sometimes in the summer. That's why we go in May and October. <laughs> anyway, a little plant grew up in a single night that blossomed out with huge elephantine leaves that shaded his little booth. Brought the temperature down considerably. My, that was lovely. It grew in a single night. And the next night, a worm cut the root. The thing was mostly made of water anyway, and it just wilted away to nothing. And he really missed that, that uh, plant gourd plant and then a big hot wind came in from the desert and Jonah fainted when he came to the Lord was there and the Lord said Jonah you didn't plant that seed that grew up in a single night and gave you shade but you appreciated it didn't you 
And it wasn't your fault that a worm cut it and it wilted away to nothing. It wasn't your fault, but you missed it, didn't you? In other words, Jonah, you didn't build a city. What is it to you whether I destroy it or save it? And then the Lord said, I have 120,000 children in that city that don't know their right hand from their left. Innocent. And since their parents have repented, are trying to repent, don't you think we could spare the city for their sake? Now that's the way the book ends. It doesn't ever tell you what happened to Jonah. They'll point to a place here where they say he was buried. We do know what happened to Nineveh. For about 40 years they remained temperate, careful, no skinning of people alive, no torturing, no atrocities. And then they went forth to conquer the world and within a very short time Babylon had conquered them and they were wiped off the face of the earth as a nation. Absolutely obliterated. Nineveh was such uh, a a completely, completely destroyed city that when Herodotus saw it about 500 B.C., he said, there was nothing there but hills of mud. There wasn't any city. It was gone. Now, from this book in the Bible, we not only now see considerable evidence that it literally happened, and as Jesus verified, Jonah was in the stomach of a whale three days and three nights, we've learned something else that we ought to remember. And that is that God never gives up on anybody who will try. Anyone who will try to make it back. There is no prophecy of the destruction of any city, including the United States of America, which has a very terrible prophecy of destruction hang over the United States of America right now. There is no country, no people that become so wicked that cannot obtain another opportunity if they will repent in time. They can't do it after the destruction is set and begun to operate, as the Book of Mormon says, but otherwise they can. I was asked on television here just recently in Texas, why would I try to frustrate the purposes of God? And I said, in what way? They said, by keeping his prophecies from being fulfilled. What do you want to save the Constitution for? What do you want to save this country for when God knows that it must be destroyed because of its wickedness? And then I, and then I just simply said, well, you have to understand prophecy. What the Lord does is to predict what's going to happen if you don't put something else in the computer. And the whole purpose of it is to get us to change so that he can bless us. Read the first chapter of Isaiah. That's what he said, how wicked the people of this nation of Judah were. But he says, wash you, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil before mine eyes. He said, if you do good, you shall eat the good of the land. And your sins will be cleansed and you shall become white as snow. That's the God we worship. And he has promised us in that very same chapter, the last half of it, that we can save America if we do our part. We're trying to turn the tide in time because it can be saved. And when you read what it says in that chapter that the United States will be like in our lifetime, it would appear, if we don't do our part, it's like David O. McKay said, we don't have an option. We have to work by day and by night to head off these evil forces that are not only destroying the Constitution, but setting us up for a terrible 
internal destruction, civil war, and revolution. And Eldridge Cleaver said, we almost got it going in 1968. We were within a year of burning down America, just petrifying the people with terror and fear and turning it in a convulsion of war and blood. We almost did it. The United States will never know how close it came to that destruction. Well, Nicaragua didn't know it was close. El Salvador didn't know how easy it was to terrify its people and turn it upside down. Now Guatemala is beginning to go through the convulsion, and Mexico will be next. Our whole purpose in getting a model constitution together is to save these nations, and we're finding friends in those countries that want to be taught the right principles, want to be elected to office and implement them, and the same is true in, in Israel, the same is true in Canada, it's true in England, so that's what we're trying to do. We remember Nineveh, never give up, never assume that we can't turn the tide for a nation. We can do it if enough people pay attention. But if they are totally obsessed in immorality, pornography, X-rated movies, or even eight hours watching sports and not having a little time to devote to a little intelligent thinking, we'll lose the country. It's that simple. We'll lose it. It's been kind of exciting to put together what the Founding Fathers would have done with some of our modern problems to turn it around. And the bottom line, of course, is the need for righteousness. You've got to have that or you cannot save a country. As Jefferson said, and Franklin repeated it, our constitution and structure of society was never designed for any but a virtuous people. It won't work for any but a virtuous people. And our nation has ceased to be a virtuous people, but there are a lot of people out there who are. They just aren't organized. And our purpose is to bring them together, restructure the nation, get the right people in office making the decisions so we can save our country in our time. With repentance and reformation, as Nineveh was saved at least for 40 years in her time, she could have been saved permanently if she hadn't abandoned the warning of Jonah the prophet. Now, it's, that's not only true of that city. I'll close by reminding us individually that's true of us as people. You know, we have a lot of repenting to do, and we have a lot of preparation to do for the judgment. Uh, sometimes we go a long time without discussing what the judgment is going to be like. It pays to read the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord says, that at the beginning of the millennium, he will have every person that ever lived on the face of the earth in one huge conference. And there will be the drama of the history of 6,000 years of human habitation on the earth. You're going to see how the earth was created. And I think that we'll be amazed. In fact, the Lord says in section 101, it will be knowledge which no man knew. You never would have guessed how I did it. He has a hint in the book of Abraham that during the creation process the earth was only turning around every thousand years and that just smashes our geological clocks temporarily but I don't think anybody will appreciate the the vision of the creation more than geologists I think they'll sit on the front row and say look at that and most of the rest of the people will say yeah, it's the way the Lord does things, you know. They won't appreciate it. They won't have had the challenge in their minds that geologists will have had trying to figure it out. <clears throat> then we're going to see Adam and Eve. That's going to be so exciting. And you're going to find out where they came from. And Brigham Young says you'll be so amazed. 
Anyway, we're going to see how the animal life got here and in what order they came. And I want to know all about the dinosaurs. I want to then. I want to know about these bones they found out that they say are fifty thousand years old and a hundred thousand years old. I want to. I want to see what how that all really happened. And then I want to see Noah. Boy, that great flood. I'm going to really look forward to that. <clears throat> That's going to be a tremendous and exciting part of the three-dimensional uh, uh, technicolor presentation of what really happened. That's going to be exciting. And I'm going to come down tw uh, ten generations later. I want to see Father Abraham. I want to see him in this land going up and down here. And I want to see Sodom and Gomorrah. That must have been interesting to see that thing go up. And uh, then I want to see um, uh, uh, Jacob. I want to see Joseph. I want to see him down in Egypt when they made him prime minister the same day he'd been in prison. Uh, that's going to be thrilling. And uh, then I'm going to follow it right down. Then the Savior's life. Oh, that'll be great. And then I want to see what happened after that, what happened to each of the apostles. I want to watch all through the Dark Ages. I know a little bit about what happened. And I want to see the, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and finally the marvelous Restoration. Oh, it's going to be great watching it chapter by chapter. But do you know when I'm going to be glued to the screen? January the 20th, 1913. An 11-pound baby boy born in a little brown house in Raymond, Alberta, Canada in 40 below zero weather. Because that's my, t my day in life. I'm going to watch that little fellow. I'm going to watch him carefully. Uh, and I'm going to see all these little things that happened to him. Fell off the, the, the barn uh, over in Spanish Fork. And uh, another time, I can think of two or three things I want to watch very carefully. And he's going to go along, and um, I'm going to watch him uh, at each stage of his development. But there's a couple of spots there I'm a little nervous about. There was that time, for example, when Thelen Fettis and I wanted to have a lot of eggs for Easter. We're both from poor families. And our primary president had a warm barn, and her chickens laid in the winter. And that was a miracle in Canada. And so we went up and we relieved her chickens of their eggs as fast as they were laid for a period of about two months and put them in our straw stack. But um, my father fed off the straw until by about, it was just a little while before Easter, he got to a bunch of eggs. And he started scooping out eggs and uh, um, he was a wise man. Uh, he apparently figured out what happened. The next thing I knew, I was being called up to the barn. And I went up there and he carefully put those eggs in a dishpan. And man, it was a whole big old-fashioned dishpan clear up here like this. He said, son, where did you get these from? I said, well, what do you mean? Where'd all those eggs come from, you know? <laughs> and... Uh, he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I just wilted. He said, you go see if you can find Thelen, Fetish. So I went down to his house. His mother and dad wasn't there. And I said, look, we're in trouble. You better come with me fast. He said, what's happening? What's happening? I said, I think, I think we're losing our eggs. <laughs> Not our marbles, just our eggs. So when we got back, there's, there's my daddy. He's got a buggy whip flipping the ground. My, my father never beaten me with a buggy whip. But man, I knew I deserved it this time. Imagine stealing eggs from Sister Bacon. This is my bacon and egg story. <laughs> I tell you. <clears throat> so, 
I really thought he was going to whip me. And after I found out what he was going to make me do, I wished he had whipped me. He said, Selen, you get a hold of that end of that dishpan. Cleon, you get a hold of that one, and you take that pan of eggs back over to Sister Bacon. Right now. And he flipped the whip. So boy, we got down there and lifted it up. And we had to cross the alley, and she had one of these long, long lots, and we had to wind through the corral and down the garden path. And by the time we got across the alley and started into her property, both of us were just bawling. We were bawling and praying, and we were praying she wasn't home, and our prayer wasn't answered. And we got to the door and knocked very tenderly. And, uh, but it was enough to get her attention, and she opened the door. And I'll never forget the expression on her face. She looked at the eggs, she looked at us, looked at the eggs, and then the sweet inspiration of the Spirit of the Lord softened her heart as she said, Boys, I needed some eggs for our primary's Easter party. And I thought my chickens had stopped laying. I didn't know where there were any eggs. And here you were saving them for me all this time. <laughs> she said, I've just baked some apple pie. You boys bring those eggs in and put them here on the sink and I'll get you a piece of warm pie. Well, I'll tell you, he and I sat there. That's the only time I ever ate apple pie with salt water mixed in with it. Both of us just bawling so hard. We never did stop bawling. We were bawling when we got home. I tell you. Now, when you've got sins like that on your conscience, <clears throat> and you know that's going to be shown on a panorama screen, I tell you, that's embarrassing. Well, isn't life full of a lot of those little bumps in life and so what's going to happen on judgment day we're all going to be sitting there we're going to be watching the screen and you say to yourself oh oh, oh here it comes here it comes and some of it's a lot more serious than stealing eggs because when you're a little bit older you know you're no supposed to know better anyway you watch it and you say oh my I wonder what everybody else is watching. Yeah, here I come, here, oh, here I come, and all of a sudden, you disappear from the screen. You just disappear. You're not even there. It's out of the computer. You sit there in grateful, grateful relief. Your children or those around you may say, hey, Dad, wait a minute, where, where are you? I'll be back. In your heart you'll say, Heavenly Father, thank you for that. Thank you for blotting it out. I tried to repent of it. I didn't know whether you'd accept it or not. Oh, the bitter hours I've spent over that. And it's not there anymore. I'm so grateful. See, that's what he does. He blots it out. That's when we learn the meaning of repentance. That's when we learn the real meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be sitting there in your second judgment and in my second judgment, because it's the second. 
Your first judgment comes the moment you die, and you come before the priesthood, and you are processed there, as Alma describes it in the 40th chapter, as to where you will be allocated preparatory to the time when you can receive your resurrection. And the amount of training that you need, the refinement that you need, uh, the, um, in some cases, the tormenting of Satan himself. As the Lord warned in the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't cleansed the record, if you haven't brought it under my atonement, believe me, you will suffer. And you will pay the uttermost farthing until it comes forth. He said, don't let my great atonement be in vain. Help me bring it in under the atonement by you doing your part. Otherwise, it would rob justice and I'm not allowed to do it. Help me, help me. Repent of those offenses. Do what you can to remedy the damage, but then bring it under the atonement so I can blot it out. Oh, what a blessing that's going to be to sit there and just watch all the good things that you did. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Because otherwise, even evil thoughts are displayed as well as bad acts. So, as Paul says, cleanse your life as you go along. We're all making mistakes. We're all overshooting the mark from day to day. Uh, not telling it as well as we should have told it. Or saying things about people we never should have said. Even if it's true, we shouldn't have said it. Or in a business deal, deliberately cheating the widows and the orphans. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. I. I served as chief of police long enough to see a lot of people rated publicly as great outstanding citizens living in mansions built out of cheating widows and orphans. All that comes to judgment. Every person should judge himself by the hour and by the day. And where we find ourselves delinquent, go on bended knee and say, Heavenly Father, I'm going back. I'm going to, I'm going to make it up to that person. I, I didn't do right by them. That was not an honest act, and I hope you'll forgive me for the deed. That's what we must preach, and that's what we must practice, because we want to be up there together. And unless our lives are accompanied by constant repentance, improvement, refinement, to blot out these weaknesses, they remain on the record. That's the gospel story. Well, that's all related to Jonah. And in that one and a half pages of scripture, take time to read it. That's not hard to do sometimes. But read it very slowly. In fact, if you read it ten times, you'll begin to get, have it talk back to you. Did you know that? A scripture will talk back to you after about the tenth reading. And you'll be amazed. It'll start to say, and of course, in order for that to be true, this other would be true, you see. And pretty soon, it all comes alive in your mind. And that's when I can write it. And that's when I can teach it. I have to read it and study it till it starts talking back to me. And then I know I, I understand it better. That's all in Jonah. Everything I've told you tonight is in Jonah. I haven't, uh, I haven't done anything except call... The, the captain by a modern name that you'd recognize and instead of the master of the ship I've called him a captain all those other details are there well that's the last of our Bible stories for today 
It's been a, just such a wonderful trip being with you folks. It's so fun to take your souvenirs home and your slides home, take your journals home, write them up. We did with our very first time over here. We're still adding to the details until it becomes a true treasure.